Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode of this podcast, we read a saga, talk about its story and themes, and then put it on trial at the Saga Thing. And, uh, John, what are we talking about this time? Well, we're covering the first part of Droplagosona Saga, the saga of the sons of Droplog. The sons of Droplog. Mm-hmm. That's a twist there. We usually see patronymics or nicknames, but Droplog's a, a woman's name. Yes, it is. Uh, this is an unusual family saga in that it has a woman's name, or mm-hmm. more accurately, a matronymic name. The sons of Droplog are known by their mother's name rather than their father's. Now, usually when men are known by a matronymic surname, there's one of three reasons. The mother is from an especially important family, or the father is unknown, or maybe he dies early. Or the sons are in some way being insulted by the connection to the feminine identifier. Mm. So uh, which one do we have here? I think we'll let the saga answer that one. Uh, first, let's talk about why we're reading this. Well, we're we're reading all the sagas, so this was sort <laughs> of inevitable if you think uh-huh. about it. Uh, but you mean, why are we reading this one right now? Yes, obviously. Well, what's happened is that we found ourselves on a little bit of a saga pull chain here. Yeah, when we finished Njal's saga this spring after nearly 10 months... We decided to be testing our listeners' patience and our own to move right into another long epic. So instead, yes. we decided to spend the summer on a series of sagas that all linked up to one another. Now, actually, as I recall, you also thought it'd be funny to cover the shortest saga right after the longest one. Which... I stand by that. Yeah, I uh, liked it. So with those two directives in mind... We, Wait, uh, we looked... directives? Yeah, what? Well, I mean, I just think that's a grandiose word for a combination of what I think was laziness and a... <laughs> Perverse sense of humor. <laughs> right. Um, how about with those two factors in mind? Okay. That's better. Uh, criteria. Uh, we started <laughs> with the saga of Thorstein the White, which is a wee little bit of a saga. Oh, just a little palate cleanser. An amuse-bouche of a saga. <laughs> amuse-bouche from a guy who objected to, to directives. Uh, yeah. How right. often do I get to whip that out? Yeah, sure. Fair enough. With our bushes thoroughly amused, uh, we Ugh. then followed the grandson of Thorstein the White into Vopnafjord Saga, which continued the ongoing story of the northeastern Icelandic struggles for regional dominance. And late in that saga, there was an almost totally irrelevant chapter that existed just so that we could establish that one of our protagonists, Thorkel Gateson, was a cousin of the Droplogersons, Helgi and Grimm. Mm-hmm. And now, here we are, reading their saga. Uh, and uh, will this saga end up scurrying off to yet another connected story? Uh, one problem at a time, please. <laughs> please. Uh, although, uh, by the time this episode comes out, I think our listeners will have already heard where all of this has led us. Right. But for, for now, let's deal with the meal that we have on the table, shall we? Fair enough. Hit the button. There's no button, John. Uh, hit the cow level. <laughs> There's no cow level. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> all right. Hit the Dana. There's no Dana. Only Zool. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I got that one. Hit the Zool. Got it. Two months ago, Saga Thing brought you the Saga of Thorstein the White as the first saga in our series on stories from the northeast of Iceland. It was there that you first met Broad Helgi Thorgerson. Saga Thing electrified the podcast world only one month later with the saga of the people of Volknafjord, where a grown-up Brodhelgi clashed with his rival Gator Lutingsen. But Saga Thing is no prouder of any tale of northeastern Iceland than with the story we bring you today. 
In this classic of saga literature, you'll meet the heroic and courageous Helgi and Grimdrop Logerson. This first episode tells of the origins and evolution of a deadly feud between the Drop Logersons and the powerful chieftain Helgi Esbjarnarsson. Witness Helgi Drop Logerson's daring as he outmaneuvers his namesake time and again in court. And yet, while the Drop Logerson star continues to rise, Helgi Esbjarnarsson bides his time and prepares to strike only when the moment is right. Who will win this battle of Helgi versus Helgi? Will the big chieftain destroy the Drop Logersons once and for all? Or will Helgi and Grimm bring down their powerful rival? Find out as Saga Thing presents The Saga of the Sons of Droplog! So what we've got here is a good old-fashioned feud saga. Yeah, a sort of medium-scale feud, but you're right. It's And it's not too big, it's not too small, it's just right. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that this saga has going for it right off the bat is its conclusion. So we're starting at the ending. Yeah. I mean, that's a bold strategy to rush through this, but uh, <laughs> let's see if it pans out. You know what I mean. You know what I'm getting at. I do, yes. Uh, this saga ends with a short genealogy, uh, confusing as many of the genealogies in well, the saga, yes. to be honest with you. But the last two lines of the saga are something like, Thorvald had a son whose name was Ingjald. It was Ingjald's son, named Thorvald, who told this story. Right now, this is the only one of the 40 family sagas that unequivocally includes the name of the author. Take a bow, Thorvald Ingildsen. Yes, now we know who to blame or praise <laughs> whenever we get to those final ratings. Yeah, I don't know if I put it that way, but it certainly changes the story a bit when we can know or at least name the writer. I don't know if it changes that much, but well, at the very least, we can occasionally name drop Thorvald during this episode. Right, that's all I mean. Yeah, so we're going to try to keep that to a minimum, but it's exciting. Now, uh, so as we said, we're essentially running through a trilogy here. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, actually, it's not just the trilogy. There's an entire cluster of these sagas that are all linked together. Sure. I I meant that Thorstein the White, Vopnifjord, and Drablagosona are all connected. But yeah, it's also, it's linked to several other stories. Right. And for one thing, this saga is set in the northeast of Iceland, in one of the more sparsely populated districts of the island. It's the same region of Iceland as Hrofenkel's saga, and in fact, I think everyone will be happy to know that one of our main figures is actually the grandson of Hrofenkel Freysgoli himself. Aw, it's been so long. Do you realize it's been almost four years since we started with Hrofenkel? Well, then it's about time we check in on the family, isn't it? (laughs) Well, and besides the Hrofenkel connection, uh, this saga has a twin. Ah. It's a situation like the two Vinland sagas. The story of Draplagosona saga is actually told again in another saga, Fjotsdala saga. But even though they tell the same story, the two sagas are really pretty different, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, that's probably an advantage for whoever wrote Fjotsdala because, you know. Gonna... Whoa, 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 whoa there. We're yeah. coming out swinging this week, aren't we? Mm-hmm. What did this saga ever do to you, John? I no, like no, no, this no. one. I'm going to be my usual inscrutable self. Uh-huh. What I was getting at is that the critics have already written about this saga and they haven't been kind. Oh, how bad could it be? Well, our friend Jonas Christensen says... The author probably had to piece the early sections of this saga together from tenuously linked fragments and didn't have an oral or written source for the early section of the story. I mean, you could say the same of a lot of medieval literature, to be honest. 
And, and while that comment isn't exactly glowing praise, it's hardly damning, especially for Christensen. He's got a bit of a reputation at this point for being particularly harsh at times with the sagas we read. Well, funny you should mention that. He's not done. Oh. The sagas as a whole exhibit occasional signs of incoherence and stylistic rough edges throughout its length. Oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does have its moments of incoherence, overall, I personally think the saga works. Uh, and Alison Finley writes that Drepalagrasona is built on oral narratives with folktale elements, a somewhat primitive style, and a tendency to add irrelevant verses to the story. Hmm. Yeah, the verses do kind of come out of nowhere near the end, but uh, primitive and irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Not the words I'd want on my tombstone. Wait, what, what do you want on your tombstone? I don't know. Maybe something like Andy. He's just this guy, you know? Classic. <laughs> I'll go with, here John Sexton lies. Everywhere else he told the truth. Oh, How about uh, one digression too many? <laughs> my only regret is not having asked for air holes. <laughs> uh, my last one uh, would be, uh, Andy tarried while you hurried. Ah, I see what you did there. It's kind of a mm. call forward. Yes, it's a call forward. Can you get away with that? I don't know. (laughs) The rest of the listeners will have to wait until the second part of this uh, saga to understand what you're just talking about. Uh, All right. My last one. I paid my quarter. Where are my other two lives? All right. Um, Let's not derail this entirely. (laughs) So the the point is that this is usually seen as an early saga in terms of its writing. And people have judged the saga harshly for its lack of literary refinement. Essentially, yeah. But that doesn't mean that we aren't going to be impressed. Only one way to find out. You ready to dig in? Wait, wait, that's what I want on my tombstone. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you're proud of that? I can see you're proud yeah, of it. A little bit, a little, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, we can't start until we give this saga's Hravenkel measurement. Uh-huh. Andy, this is as close as we're ever going to get to a sequel to Hravenkel's saga. How does it stack up? Well, I mean, it's got to be pretty close. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was much longer or shorter than our last saga. So uh, I'm going to do the same thing I did last time. Let's call it one Hravenkel, like mm-hmm. father, like son. That's not bad. This saga is 9,601 words long. It's 1.05 Hravenkels and, interestingly, a mere 18 words shorter than Vopnafjord, our last saga. And yet this is going to take two episodes to cover. Yeah. I, I just want to remind you, we managed to get through Vopnafjord in one, and we did Hravenkel and the Judgments in one. I know, but there's a lot happening in this saga and a lot of other material we have to draw in. Uh, for example, there's a killing late in this saga that appears remarkably similar to Gisli Sersen's murder of his brother-in-law, Thorgrim the Gothi. Yeah. And all kinds of cool things to set that up. Yep. But uh, All right, as you say, uh, there's a lot to cover before we get to that. Are we ready? Roll it. Part 1. The Hidden Hebridians. The, the uh, Hidden Hebridians. That's uh, halfway to a tongue twister, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me see. Uh, the Hidden Hebridians bidden by Britain's hid bread in the midden. See, I knew you <laughs> thought the whole thing through. You had that prepped. Of course I did. <laughs> so uh, I know we said this once or twice before, but uh, this saga introduces a lot of people right at the outset. Yeah, a lot of people. Literally scores of people. It's, it's not an unusual feature. I mean, even some editors and scholars lament the rosters and genealogies that kick off so many of the sagas. Um, you and I tend to generally nerd out about mm-hmm. them as we're about to do. Uh, but this one's a little different. Well, it just doesn't let up. As we said, this is a shorter saga, but it's got a cast that just keeps going. And it leads to some bizarre statistics. 
Andy, the first three chapters introduce 53 people in the first 1,557 words. That's an average of one new named figure every 29.3 words for the first sixth of the saga. Not that you counted or anything, <laughs> but uh, th- that's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy a challenge, but that's a bit much. Yeah. But what's uh, really amazing is that the author isn't just listing names. He manages to tell an entire story about a raid in the Hebrides, recount the story of a man who falls in love with another man's servant, include the tragic story of three people who die in a traveling accident, explain the settlement of various figures on a network of farms in the Lagerfeld region of Iceland, and then he sets up the first conflict of the saga. Right. All that and 53 people in just over 1,500 words. And now when we say... When we say that these saga authors are efficient writers, we're not kidding. <laughs> and this author, Thorvald Ingildsen, is no exception. I think we, people could start a really effective game right now. I won't say drinking game because, of course, we don't encourage that sort of thing. But Never. every time we name drop Thorvald Ingildsen, because uh, we're going to be saying it as much as possible because we're so excited about being able to name an author. Uh, the problem with uh, old Thorvald is that as modern readers, we aren't ready for information dump like this at the start of a story. Uh, no. Most readers throw in the towel when they get to the fifth consecutive paragraph that starts, There was a man called Bercy. He was the son of Azur. His son was called Holmstein. His wife was Aslag Thor's daughter, the sister of Ravenkel the Gothi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this, because it, it, it's circular, it kind of right. goes back on itself right. in a weird way. But uh, for the saga's original audience, this was presumably very interesting stuff. Sure. And I say presumably because. I'm not sure that his particular delivery is right. the best of genealogical right. delivery. Um, no, the genealogical matrix that all this information creates almost certainly wasn't as overwhelming for contemporary audiences as it would be for a modern reader. If I can paraphrase one of my dissertation advisors, this is the kind of thing they thought with. Yeah, it fit their way of thinking about the world. Right, right. I mean, there's a logic of tribalism at the heart of the sagas. Right? For those who thought that way, our tendency to present an individual absent of a network of social and family connections would seem strange and colorless. Yes, but isn't that also a kind of worldview? Mm-hmm. I mean, presenting a hero as existing outside of the usual order of family structures and social connections, I mean, that's a way of seeing our place in the world as well. That's what we yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, it's, it's a variation of the hero's journey. Right. Most yeah. of our modern heroes are entirely or mostly missing those connections to family or else lose them at the start of their story. I mean, you can think of Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker, Dorothy Gale, Leatherstocking, Huckleberry Finn, Bilbo Baggins, Katniss Everdeen. Um, heck, go to movies. John Wick, Johnny Mnemonic, Neo from The Matrix, Jack Traven uh-huh. from Speed. John, you're just, you just slipped into naming Keanu Reeves. Right. <laughs> Yes, I, that's my that's part of my point. Right. Is uh, and you forgot Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name. Mm. Uh, that's probably the purest example of what you're talking about. Well, I hadn't run out of Keanu movies yet. Uh, we, <laughs> we could do an entire episode on the hero's journey, but in the interest of getting to the actual saga, at some point, I want to just kind of you know move on. Uh, I'll just say the Icelandic sagas prize individual ability and accomplishment, but they don't need to divorce the protagonist from his or her social context. Instead, those family connections enrich and complicate our perceptions of the heroic figure and their actions. And if any of you are interested, I actually spend an evening mapping out the saga, probably more than an evening at this <laughs> point, mapping out the saga's complex uh, genealogy in an attempt to make sense of it all. Um, it's been edited and re-edited, and there's probably still mistakes in it. But um, I've got no way of sharing the results in any comprehensive or dynamic way, but I will post some PDFs which will show you the genealogies. Yeah, I looked at what you did. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. <laughs> 
Well, you'll forgive me if I took some liberties in an attempt to flesh things out here and there, looking at uh, other sagas, other sources. Uh, but that's because our our author isn't always our author uh, Thorvald Ingildson. Oh, really? Isn't always as clear as we'd like him to be. <laughs> so I consulted these other sources mm-hmm. to kind of confirm suspicions or fill in gaps where I could. Uh, the program I use call it's it's called Family Echo, which is a simplified family tree builder online. And John and I would love to pursue a thorough genealogy of saga characters at some point, and I kind of got lost in that mm-hmm. uh, while I was doing this. But uh, what I found and have found is that there's no real good or appropriate genealogy program out there for the kind of work that saga genealogies demand. Yeah, we've mentioned this before, but we're serious about tackling the genealogies of the family sagas in a in a comprehensive way. Uh, by the way, if there are any progr- programmers out there that feel like uh, helping us build a, an appropriate genealogy program for this project for the satisfaction and no money at all, get in, <laughs> get in touch with us via email. We'd love to hear from you and exploit you. <laughs> That's right. We are at uh, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Come to us for your exploitation. <laughs> Um, now, are you uh, ready to dig into the saga? I think we're better off explaining the story first this time around mm-hmm. and then talking about the family ties once we've kind of met some of the guys. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Uh, well, the saga begins with the story of two brothers named Kettlethrum and Porridge Atli. And I can already tell I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, oh yeah, you're going to have some fun with the nicknames this time mm-hmm. around. Uh, Kettlethrum is the great-grandfather of the Droplogersons, which is why the saga starts with him. Mm-hmm. Kettle and his brother share a farm and a cargo ship. And one winter, they decide to stay in Sweden rather than risk a winter voyage back home. Well, that's just good sense. I mean, they they spend the winter in Jemtland with the four Ronvoldsons, the oldest of whom is named Vethorm. And we should probably keep this part brief. I'll do my best. Oh, God help us. Shh. Kettle notices a pair of servant women in Vethorm's house, one older and one younger. He makes some inquiries about the younger one, who's named Arnaid, and learns that she and her mother are the daughter and wife of Earl Asbjorn Skerryblaze, the former Earl of the Hebrides. When Vaithorm and his brothers attacked and killed the Earl, they brought Arnaid and her mother back as slaves. Well, that wasn't all that unusual for Viking raiders, though. I mean, sometimes these women became wives of the men who captured them. Sometimes they became household servants, mm-hmm. and occasionally they were sold into slavery. But not all Vikings were involved in the slave trade, it's worth noting. Mm. Hashtag not all Vikings. I, I, I don't think it'll catch on. <laughs> You know what? I think hashtag not all Vikings could catch on, but that's not really my <laughs> point. Uh, I'm saying that Vaithorm doesn't seem to have involved himself in trading away these slaves. Of course, having said that, he's certainly open to offers. Right. Say, for example, if a house guest were to fall in love with a certain captured Earl's daughter. Like that, yes. Uh, there's a definite storybook quality, and I think this is the uh, the folktale element mm-hmm. that has been referred to. Um, and it, it permeates this entire section, which is really just one chapter. Um I mean, Kettleson, if you look at it, Kettleson an odd sort of Prince Charming, but still, he's a <laughs> yeah. charming prince. No, it's a definite feature of the saga, especially in this first section. Uh, Alison Finlay notes that folkloric elements abound in this early part of the saga. And remember, we also said before that this early part had to be reconstructed from tenuous or absent records. That's right. So, in other words, the glue this writer used to hold together his bits and pieces of narrative was mostly folktales. It looks that way, more or less. Uh, So when we learn that Arnaid is a secret heiress, we can pretty much guess the rest. And sure enough, Mm -hmm. Kettle decides he likes Arnaid and buys her from Vaithorm at a very reasonable price. Yeah, there's an interesting exchange here. It's still winter, and so Kettle and Porridge, oddly, aren't able to actually leave. Mm -hmm. 
And the question of Arnaid's status in Vaithorm's house is potentially awkward. You see, she has nowhere to go now that she's free mm-hmm. and also no money to pay Vaithorn for a room and board. Right. See, now she could work for her room and board. Which puts her right back to where she was before Kettle got there. And Kettle's clearly aware of this problem, which is why he offers to pay Vaithorn for her food and board for the winter, Mm -hmm. since he doesn't want her working as a servant in the house anymore. Well, they're planning on marrying, aren't they? It looks that way, though there's nothing official yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although I'm not sure that Arnaid realizes this quite Hmm. at this moment. I don't don't know. And, And Vaithorn refuses the offer, but understands its motive. Now that Arnaid is in Kettle's company, she's a guest in his home and will be treated like any other honored guest. Right, so that's all. Wait, hang on. Uh, what about Arnaid's mother? Yeah, she isn't mentioned again in the text. Kind of kind of harsh, right? I, it is. What the hell, Arnaid? Sorry, Shmi. I've got a chance to get out of this dump and I'm taking it. Look, John, <laughs> I, I know you love Star Wars, uh, but every episode you drop an obscure name or reference. And I know that this is a Star Wars one. I just don't know who or what. Who is Shmi? Oh, she's Anakin's mother from the prequels. That's not obscure. <sighs> no wonder I didn't get it. But yeah, uh, that kind of works. Although, right, things work out great for Shmi, right? Until the whole torture by Tusken Raiders thing. Uh, well, she did find love for a little while. Yeah, this doesn't really help me with the saga. It does remind me of why I hate the prequels. Uh, but <laughs> let's go knock it off track. Sure, yeah. So uh, Arnid turns out to be a great partner for Kettle. On their voyage home, the party goes ashore for the night at Vik. Arnaid and another woman go inland for to search for nuts and other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Arnid sends the woman back to the ship to get Kettle because she says, she says, she found some coals. Yeah, coals. Just just coals. Newcastle nuggets. Pre diamonds. Nutty slack. Nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> nutty slack what oh <laughs> it's a post-world war ii slang for low-grade fuel it was uh of course it, it was is. made from of pressed course. coal dust with little bits of coal in it uh like a charcoal briquette right. she's trying to make it sound unimportant like nothing worth seeing except that she wants kettle to come see it uh kettle's got a thing for coals he's a collector yeah that's it <sighs> she <laughs> She's a, she's a tricky one, that Arnaid, mm-hmm. um, but it yes, works. It's, it's quite when, a plan, quite a cunning plan. When uh, Keto comes to her, she shows him what she's actually found. Not coals. Well, there might be coals there, but underneath the coals, are there's a chest, and it's filled with silver. Okay. So this is obviously very convenient for Arnaid. Uh, yeah, but it's not so convenient for whoever hid the chest there. I mean, mm-hmm. just imagine this guy's disappointment when he comes back to get it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but it's an implausible bit of luck that Arnid happens to find a nice dowry's worth of silver in a chest just when she's been freed by Kettle and isn't sure of his intentions toward her. You think this is a dowry? Well, no. I, I think it's a convenient bit of plotting from our author, Thorvald. Oh, there you go. Uh, and it gives Kettle a chance to show his quality. Right? When he realizes what Arnid has found... He offers to sail her back to her relatives in the Hebrides with the silver. But Arnaid likes the look of Kettle, mm-hmm. and she decides to stay with him. And they sail and they sail back to Iceland, and eventually do get married sometime later, and they have a son named Thidrandi. Yeah, see, it is a dowry. I mean, I guess you could see it that way, but uh, I think it could have worked out the same with or without the chest of silver. Mm. Now, unfortunately, we don't learn much about their married life beyond this heartwarming scene of stealing someone's cash of silver <laughs> because Kettle <laughs> dies young. Aww. Their son, Thidrandi, inherits the farm and the Gothorth or chieftaincy from his father. 
And now the saga speeds forward through a whole generation. Yeah, it's a little strange. I want to know more about Arnid and Kettle. This is an interesting pairing we've got here. But the saga just leaves them in the dust. Uh, essentially, yeah. their story is told to set up why the family arrives in Iceland with a substantial nest egg and the ability to buy land and power right away. And there's a hint that they might have held on to that silver hoard. Mm. Uh, Emily Lethbridge on her Sagastead site uh, points out that a farming family near Eilstadr found a silver hoard buried in their yard in 1980. Yep. And that's very near the site where Arnid and Kettle are supposed to have lived. Mm-hmm. So are we saying that Arnid dragged this box of silver all the way to Iceland just to bury it again? Well, I mean, it's just Lethbridge retelling the story of a local historian named Helgi Holgrimsson. Uh, but yes, it's possible that they spent some of the silver of... And then, and then we buried it. Well, whatever the case, Arnid and Kettle's family is thriving in Iceland from the moment they arrive. Indeed. Part 2. Family Matters. Did I do that? Oh, don't. <laughs> All right. Hold on to your horses here, kids. This section's going to be a doozy. Yeah, you can say that again. Hold on to your horses, kids. Oh, this... really? really? That just killed in the Catskills, didn't it? <laughs> Take my wife, please. <laughs> uh, we're going to be covering a lot of genealogical information in this chapter, but uh, it's not because we don't love you. It's actually necessary for making sense of what's about to happen in this episode. That's right. Uh, we'll begin with Thidrandi, the son of Kettle and Arnaid. Yeah, he's done very well for himself and quickly begins consolidating power in the region around Lagerfjord when he marries Ingvild Havarsdotter. His brother-in-law, Bersi, marries Ingibjorg, who brings the territory of Ness as her dowry. Right. And when you follow the genealogy here, you'll see that Ingibjorg is the daughter of Eil the Red, who's mentioned in the Lannama book as the settler of Ness. Uh, he's also, it just so happens, the nephew of Vaithorm, who Kettle purchased Arnid from. Now, this might sound confusing if you're just listening. Yeah, honestly, it's not much easier reading it. <laughs> uh, the genealogy that Andy put together for this episode is helpful if you could make sense of it all. So give it, a, give it a look. Yeah, it definitely helps you to visualize the various familial connections at play in the saga. Um, all right, so moving on. Thithrandi further consolidates power for his family by arranging good marriages for the five children he has with Ingvald. Mm. Now, I'll mention just a few of these. The first is a pretty big deal. Their daughter, Yored, is married off to Hall of Sida. That name should sound familiar. Yes, Hall of Sida. We've bumped into him in past episodes, uh, most notably in Njal's saga, where he played a very important role. Uh, not only is he the father-in-law of Flosi from Svinefell, he's also an early convert to Christianity and a major player in the conversion. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a big deal. Good for Thrithrandi. That's a strong ally to have. It is. And you can learn all about that family connection and its genealogy, including more on Thrumkettle's own family line, if you go back to Njal's saga, chapter 96. And that's where Hall gets introduced. And mm-hmm. uh, in there is one more interesting tidbit for you, John. Is that right? What uh, what little nugget will I find there? Well, you would find that Thrithrandi has a nickname. Oh, really? Yeah. It's possible I covered it in Njal Saga, but who can remember? Not me. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. But I, I honestly don't think the nickname's cool enough to have warranted coverage there. And since you're not chomping at the bit to uh, announce it, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, he's called Thithrandi the Wise in that genealogy. Oh, so he carries on the nickname of his grandfather, Bersi the Wise. That's correct. Uh, but I'm sure that we're the only two people currently alive that find that interesting, so... Yeah. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, so who's next in the illustrious line of Thrithrandi the Wise? Uh, next, we have Halkatla, a younger daughter. Uh, her name should also sound familiar because she's married to Gator Lutingsen. 
Ah, yes, the one-time BFF and then mortal enemy of Broad Helgi Thorgelson from Vopnafirthinga Saga. That's right. And this is actually an important detail. We already know that Gaetir is an influential man in the region, but it's more important because Hulkatla and Gaetir's son Thorkel is going to be a major player in this saga. Well, a player, anyway. I mean, he comes. Although he, I do say he comes off much better here than he does in Vopna for the Saga. Yeah, he does. Uh, we both rejected him as Thingman in our judgments, but uh, that's because he came off poorly in that saga. He's a much more powerful and interesting figure here. But uh, back to our genealogy. <laughs> now, go the, on. Thidrandi and Ingvald have uh, two sons, Ketul and Thorvald. Ketul grows up to be a great chieftain, we're told, but he's not terribly important, so. Let's skip him. Mm-hmm. Thorvald is important, not so much for... Uh, Thorvald, however, is important, not so much for what he accomplishes as who he fathers. Yes, finally, we're getting to the actual players in this saga. We are. Thorvald marries a woman named Droplaug. Now, there's a spurious story about her origins not included in this saga, but eventually we will cover her mm-hmm. in our Saga Shorts project when we get to Brandkrossi's Thater. It's not the best Thater out there, but it does tell a story about her family. For now... What matters is that Droplaug has entered the saga. Now, if you're paying attention to the saga title earlier, you know that we've finally gotten to an important generation here. Thorvald and Droplaug have two sons, Helgi and Grimm. And like his grandfather, Thorvald dies young. And so his sons end up being known by their mother's name, thus the Droplaugersons. And whether you like it or not, dear listeners, that concludes this part of our lengthy genealogy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are more connections to be made, uh, but it's time to tell a little bit of the story of the saga. Right, for the the half dozen of you who made it this far. uh, (laughs) We know that Helgi and Grimm are going to be important because the saga author tells us right away. Thorvald Ingildsen? Ah, yes, because Thorvald Ingildsen pauses to describe them for us. Indeed. Helgi and Grimm are both big and strong. Helgi's a handsome and cheerful fellow with a bit of an aggressive streak. and Oh, and he's also got no interest in farming whatsoever. His brother Grimm is an excellent farmer, known for a calm and even-tempered disposition. And he's not good-looking. Well, I mean, he's not as handsome as Helgi. Uh, but both men are skilled in a variety of manly pursuits and are widely regarded as foremost among all young men in the district. Right, but they're not the only game in town. The rival power in this region is Helgi Asbjörnsson, uh, who's a chieftain living at Alstaller. Mm-hmm. We'll be calling this guy Helgi A or Asbjörnsson uh, to differentiate him from Helgi D or Droplagerson. Helgi A is the grandson of Hravnkel Freysgothi. His, uh, his father, Asbjörn, was one of the two sons of Hravnkel mentioned at the end of that saga. Mm-hmm. I hope he lives up to his grandpappy's reputation for strong leadership. Oh, look at you blowing smoke at your uh, your thing, man. Um, for now, Helgi Esbjarnason is mostly notable for being a chieftain and a well-respected man. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to confuse things as much as possible, Andy, this Helgi is married to a woman named, wait for it, Droplaug Bursadotter. Of course he is. I mean, why <laughs> wouldn't he be? Sure. <laughs> She's uh, one of the daughters of Bersi the Wise, though I, I'm not quite sure who her mother is. Mm-hmm. It's possible that she and Havar have the same mother, but I couldn't confirm that. But anyway, here's the problem. We now have a Helgi, son of Droplaug, and a Helgi Asbjörnsson, married to a different Droplaug. Yep. Uh, It'd be nice to say there's a family link here, and there sort of is, but it's not the right link. The Droplaugersson's grandmother, Ingvild, is the niece of Droplaug Bersadotter. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it would, (laughs) except that Droplaug Bersadotter is their 
paternal uh, great great aunt. So. She's not related to the Droplog who's mother to Helgi and Grimm. No, why would she be? Yeah, that's not that surprising. Droplog's such a common name. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> It's quite rare uh, and likely a Scandinavian adaptation of a Gaelic name, or at least that's what uh, Gudbrand Vigvason says. Uh, but this Droplog and Droplog issue isn't going to be a problem for long. <laughs> that sounded like a threat, John. Is there really only room enough for one Droplog in this saga? That's right. We need a little Ennio Morricone music here. Yes. <laughs> uh, Helgi Asbjarnason's wife goes on a visit to her mother's house, and on the way home, she falls through some ice into deep water. Mm-hmm. And two servants who are with her also die. That's actually kind of um, a relief <laughs> to be grim. Uh, we don't have to juggle two drop logs now. That's a little cold. On the other hand, so is drop log. Uh, cool it with those bad jokes. We're going to lose the podcasting license we've been given. Hey, it's a freeze country. Don't tell me to chill. A freeze country. I say we can talk about drop log till we're blue in the face. Look, if you insist on doing ice puns, at least have the common decency to do it in a Schwarzenegger voice. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, So, Helgi A is broken up by the death of Droplog. But after moving to Miovaness, he starts to feel better. And before long, he's looking for a new wife. Now, we've talked about that before, right? I mean, people often remarried with what would look like unseemly haste to us. But the gendered spheres of authority in medieval Iceland meant that there were a lot of day-to-day details of running a farm and raising children that a father wouldn't necessarily have been involved in. Mm -hmm. Uh, These second marriages might prove successful, but they were also practical. Well, and in this case, it's also an important plot point because Helgi's new wife is named Thordis Tada. Does that uh, that name ring any bells? Well, of course. She was in the last episode. And a quick look at the genealogy reveals that she's the daughter of Broad Helgi and poor sick Hala. Exactly. So Helgi as Bjarnason is now the brother-in-law of Bjarni Helgason. Now, okay. We have all this genealogical info under our belts. So you know, we let's... keep saying that, but we keep talking about genealogy. Well, you know what? That's what happens when you finish chapter two uh-huh. and three, and then you hit chapter four, and you, it just keeps I going. Know. I know. Um, <laughs> but let's try to make sense of all of this in a way that's a bit more accessible for the audience. Why don't you go ahead and try? Well, <laughs> sure. Thanks. Uh, we can try. Uh, so, all right. We're essentially looking at two large family groups. They're tenuously connected by a single marriage. The Droplaugersons' grandfather, Thrudrandi, married Ingvild, the niece of Droplaug Bersadotter. And this is the same Droplaug who got frozen out of the saga, is that right? Ah, right. Now you're getting the cold shoulder. That marriage link isn't terribly strong. It's definitely not central to the saga, and neither side sees themselves as connected to the other. Yes. Uh, what's more important to understand is that, as we said earlier, the saga takes place alongside and following the stories of our last two sagas. So mm-hmm. the two sides are informed by the rivalries from the last couple episodes. Right. Our first group centers on Helgi Asbjarnason and his extended family and supporters. Helgi is a chieftain and has a fair number of influential cousins and in-laws. And now, with the marriage to Thordis Tota, his allies include the family of Brodhelgi Bjarnason from Thorstein the White and Vapnafjord sagas. And on the other side, we have the Droplagerson group. Uh, and the two most important members are the brothers Helgi and Grim Droplagerson. Mm-hmm. And now their mother, Droplag, remarried after their father died. So they have a stepfather named Halstein and a group of three stepbrothers, the Halstinsons. And Helgi doesn't really like the idea of his mother remarrying this guy. Mm-hmm. In fact, we don't 
ever really see the Halsinsons and the Droplogersons interacting in any meaningful way. Except for once, and that's not a friendly meeting. Ooh, foreshadowing. I try. Uh, now, later on, Halstein and Droplog will have another young boy, so Grimm and Helgi have a young half-brother. Uh, but he's a toddler, and he really doesn't matter to the saga. Their extended family is important, though, and it includes Geter Lutingsen and Thorkel Gatesson from Vapnafjord Saga. And the feuds we saw in our last two sagas tie into the recent past of this, these two kin groups uh, that are built around Helgi Asbjörnarsson and the Droplogersons. Mm-hmm. These two groups already have a lot of built-up animosity to one another. Right, and, and that comes through. Right? There's not going to be a lot of build-up here. As Bjarnason and the Droplogersons are already on each other's radar and on each other's nerves, yeah. and all it's going to take is somebody throwing the first punch. Exactly. Part 3. The Ptarmigan Hunt. So who is throwing the punch? Well, I may have misrepresented that a little. It's not a punch, it's a spear. Ah, I like where this is heading. Mm-hmm. What kind of spear, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, we're not doing another digression on spears, okay? Well, fine, carry on. Uh, so this is part it of the saga. It was just a spjolt, nothing special. I looked it up. <laughs> mm. So this part of the saga, he said meaningfully, is really about a series of skirmishes between Helgi Asbjarnason and Helgi Droplagerson. In each case, the two of them are working to damage one another's public image without opposing one another directly. Sure. Uh, This is one of the ways that smarter chieftains or powerful men try to undermine their rivals. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, a Gothi taking up a supporter's claim against a rival Gothi supporter could serve as a kind of proxy warfare. In more extreme cases, one chieftain might take direct action against a supporter of another, but still without engaging his rival directly. Right, Cold War tactics, right? These are essentially Cold War tactics. Essentially so, yeah, absolutely. And inevitably, a conflict that develops on those lines sooner or later forces everyone in the area to choose sides. Right. And in this case, Helgi A is the more powerful of the two men, but Helgi D is the more aggressive. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily clear to third parties which one of them is the better bet. All right. So uh, let's get back to that spear punch. Uh, well, uh, to tell it briefly, a few men are gathered at the farm of Thorir of Munis, and they get to gossiping about the locals, as one does. Oh, sure. And when the conversation turns to Droplaug and her sons, everyone agrees that she's one of the best women in the district. But one man, Thorgrim the Dung Beetle, sneers, So she would be, if she'd been content with just your husband. That's Thorgrim Dung Beetle. Yeah, we'll get to that in the nickname judgments. I hope you'll let me handle that one. Well, I mean, by all means, nicknames are usually my domain. But because, well, but John, I spent a good solid afternoon on that name. I oh, researched good. Scandinavian entomology and etymology at the same time. <laughs> and I even went back and forth with a real life Norwegian on the subject of Thorgrim's nicknames. I mean, come on, let me do it. Well, maybe just this once. Oh, excellent. So the dung beetle is mine. <laughs> now that uh, the insult is again, now that insult is against the droplog whose husband Thorvald died. Uh huh. Yeah, I was a bit confused by the exact context. Is this meant to imply that she was cheating on Thorvald when he was still alive, that she's been promiscuous since his death, or that she somehow killed him to be with someone else? Uh, any or none of the above, I think. Huh, if, I, nice. if I can use a technical term, Thorgrim is speaking from out of his derriere. Mm. Uh, everyone else rejects what he says out of hand, and Thorir, the host, immediately tells them to shut up and drop the subject. Yeah, but we know that's not going to stop a juicy bit of gossip like this. Right. And, of course, it happens. The next day, 
a wandering worker named Thorfinn, stops by Droplog's farm and tells her exactly what Dung Beetle said. Mm. And when she tells her sons about the slander against her, she adds, And you two will avenge neither this dishonor nor any other, even though it's done to your own mother. Ah, it's a classic motherly guilt trip. Works every time. Yeah, depending on how you read it, it could also be a bit of reverse psychology if she's saying, uh, uh, don't do this, but she's really saying, do this. But yeah. uh, no matter how you read it, it's a classic example of what's been called the cold council motif in the sagas. Women often, but not always, related to the subject of the council, use a combination of insinuation and insult to put men into situations that demand a response from their masculine pride. Right, we've seen this a bunch of times. Uh, just look at the examples from Njal Saga, right? Uh, Halgirth used her foster father to take revenge on her husband. Bergthora goaded her boys into violent action. Uh, Hildegun pushed Flosi into the lawsuit that led to the burning. And since we're talking about Hrofenkel's family in this episode, we can add one from all the way back in Hrofenkel's saga. Uh, mm-hmm. You remember Hrofenkel has a serving woman in the house who almost seems to be responsible for providing that same kind of push to action. Right, you wonder if that's actually in her job description. Right. right. I'm, I'm sort of a lazy fellow who likes to sleep late, so your job is to occasionally shame my manhood until yes. I act. Get me moving. Uh, <laughs> Since my mother's should, not around to do it. Right, right. We should be clear at this motif, like so many things in the sagas, uh, doesn't really come with a preset moral or ethical interpretation. Right? Like any other means of achieving an end, a great deal depends on what we think of the individuals involved. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a tool toward an end. That end might be the destruction of a rival, the upholding of family or personal honor, or the defense of property or power. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially like an axe or a spear. It's a weapon, and, and it's an effective weapon. Uh, but what's important isn't whether it's used, it's how it's used. In this case, Droplog's personal honor has been assaulted through this insinuation that she's been unfaithful to her husband or husbands. And by extension, there's an insult to her current husband, to her dead husband, and to her sons, whose parentage could be called into question by any serious accusations of infidelity. Right, which is serious business. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that comes from a single bit of malicious gossip that has to be taken seriously. Right. The saga tradition pretty much requires a violent response to something like this, and I, for one, am looking forward to it. Yep, and uh, obviously, if we're thinking about this from a literary point of view, uh, we have to remember the role of authors like Thorvald Ingelsen, Mm-hmm. As interpreters of their stories, uh, women who act as goads to action are a valuable part of the formal expectations of the sagas, and we have to think of them in that way as well. Mm, that's good. In other words, we can't assume that real women's relationship to feud culture actually correlated to their literary counterparts. Yeah, and there's an entire volume of essays dedicated to exploring this topic. Uh, it's conveniently called Cold Counsel. Uh, but if you're just looking for a quick but very good intro to the topic, try Elsa Mundahl's entry on women in the sagas in the medieval Scandinavia encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's stipulate everything we've said so far. There's still a problem with Droplog goading her kids into violence, whether directly or indirectly. Which is? Well, they're kids. I mean, they're actually <laughs> kind of kids. Helgi's yeah. 13 and Grimm's 12. Yeah, that, that's a problem. Uh, but a little thing like that isn't going to stop her. And it's not going to stop her little tweens from defending their mother's honor. Well, of course not. Although it is worth remembering that a 12-year-old boy of today is quite different from a 12-year-old of the saga age. Oh, absolutely. I mean, kids were allowed to play and they were more free than adults, but they were also expected to work and take on many responsibilities around the house and farm. And this starts pretty early. A boy of seven would be expected to be already steeped in training to develop the skills he'd need as an adult. Right, and and we've seen plenty of children around the age of 12 in the sagas getting involved in feuds, though Mm -hmm. it's usually a marker of their exceptional quality. 
Right. Remember, uh, Broad Helgi at one point went off and um, uh, outlawed a man and then killed him. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it can be for good or evil, right? It depends on the particulars of the situation. Right. And remember, a boy of 12 was considered old enough to sit as a judge in court. But uh, we were talking about Helgi and Grimm. The brothers then head out to Thorir's farm under the pretense of a ptarmigan hunt, and they find Thorgrim Dungbeetle on, and another farmhand on an island collecting hay. Wait, why ptarmigan? This well, is a wh- joke, right? Well, uh, why are they on an island collecting hay? I mean, there's got to be better places. They are. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> it's, n- it's not explaining. They're just out on an island. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous on the face of it, but when their aunt Groa asks them where they're going, they have to say something, don't they? And hunting ptarmigan or any other birds would have been pretty common. Ptarmigan meat sure. was was and is a part of Icelandic cuisine. So I think that's a reasonable cover for their actual mission. I think there's also a bit of an insult to uh, Thorgrim Dungbeetle there. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more harmless or unthreatening bird than the ptarmigan. Uh, they're, I don't know if you know any. They're, they're about a foot long. They look like a combination of a grouse and a chicken. Yeah. And their meat became part of Icelandic cuisine because it was really easy to kill. <laughs> <laughs> so so the Droplagersons find Dung Beetle and his co-worker in an open hayfield. Mm-hmm. Dung Beetle unharnesses the horse from the hay sled in an attempt to flee. But just as he swings up onto the horse's back, Helgi throws a spear that catches him right through the middle. Oh, alas, poor Dung Beetle. Mm. Nevermore shall you roll the sun across the sky. Um, that's the wrong mythology, I think. This one uh, doesn't roll the dung. It just enjoys living in it. Yeah, that's just as well. That always struck me as a weird myth. Yeah. So Helgi Droplagerson kills a man with a spear throw. It's not bad for a 13-year-old. Well, we said that they were big for their age. Mm. Anyway, they, they return to their home and tell their aunt the ptarmigan hunt didn't go well. But we did catch one Dung Beetle, they say. Waka waka. <laughs> their aunt warns them not to treat the situation so lightly and that Dung Beetle's powerful friends will not be happy about the killing. And meanwhile, the other farmhand, who the brothers left alive, reports what happened and who killed Dung Beetle. Uh, yeah, but Dung Beetle's just a small-time troublemaker, right? Sort of. I mean, yeah. But Auntie Gro was right. He was linked to important people. Not only was he employed by Thorir, who's a well-connected landowner, but he was also a freed slave of Helgi Asbjarnarsson. Hmm. Yeah, and if that weren't problem enough, there's also the brother's failure to announce the killing properly. Yeah, that's never good. We've talked about this a couple times. Icelandic legal practice differentiated between killing and murder, and mm-hmm. failing to report a killing made it a murder, uh, which was much more serious and carried far harsher penalties. Now, and this leads us to one of the few hints of anything supernatural in this saga. The brothers are criticized by their relative Bersi the Wise for failing to report killing Dung Beetle. Mm-hmm. But it's not until a two-week blizzard hits the region that Bercy decides they've angered the gods. Can you imagine a two-week blizzard? <laughs> I mean, I know in uh, Massachusetts you've lived through a couple yeah, of blizzards. Yeah, I've, but, I've uh, lived through a few, a few pretty severe ones, but not a two-week one. Yeah. Now, what they did to annoy the gods is a little bit obscure. They walk in circles around the temple on Bercy's land because they were losing their way in the storm, and I guess it's in mm-hmm. the wrong direction is part right. of the problem. It's not crystal clear why that's annoying. Uh, and in fact, Bercy might be using this tactic to get the Droploggersons to make restitution for Dung Beetle's death. Well, I mean, if that's what he's after, it works, right? They do report the killing. Yeah. But they've still got this trouble with Helgi as Bjarnason on the horizon, and so they visit the Krakalak Assembly Krakalak. in spring with their cousin, Thorkel Gateson. Our old friend Thorkel Gateson from the last mm. saga. Welcome back, Thorkel. 
Yeah, he supports the brothers, and with his help, a settlement is reached when Thorkel agrees to pay compensation to Helgi A for Dung Beetle's death. Now, that's not going to sit well with Helgi Droplagerson. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as he's concerned, killing Dung Beetle was a fair revenge for the insult to his mother. Paying for the killing, he believes, means that there's still a stain on the family honor to avenge. Right, and that means he's going to have his sights set on Helgi as Bjarnason. So Helgi Droplagerson spends some time with his cousin Thorkel Gadesen and learns some law from him, enough to start taking up small-scale lawsuits against Helgi Asbjarnason's thingmen. So he's just starting a campaign of harassment against anyone associated with Helgi Asbjarnason. Yep. Uh, he's just trying to get under Asbjarnason's skin. Mm-hmm. And three of those episodes are now given in some detail. We're going to have to deal with them in pretty quick succession so we can get on to the rest of the saga. Sure, John. But I think we should talk about them a little. Uh, okay, but then we need a new section title. Ah. Part 4. Helgi versus Helgi. Okay. So you said we have a lot of little stories to cover here. Yeah, but let's promise not to let these little episodes overwhelm us. I know we're doing this saga in two episodes, but there has to be a limit. Okay. So the pocket-sized version is that first... Helge Droplagerson interferes in a dispute between Helge Asbjarnason and his nephew Hravnka. Mm-hmm. Second, he takes up a case against Helge A's friend Thord over some stolen used milk. Of course. And third, he takes up a paternity suit against Helge A's friend Bjorn and eventually resorts to violence there. Okay. So hang on just a moment here. What? What? Uh, that's a lot at once. And once again, the trap we always fall into, a lot of names mm-hmm. all at once. Yep. How is anyone supposed to follow that? It's fine. We're going to go through them one at a time. All right. Well, then let's start at the top. Helgi Asbjarnarsson's having trouble with his own nephew, right? Yeah. Uh, the problem is that Helgi's chieftaincy is actually jointly held with his brother's son, Hravnkel. Nice that they're keeping the Hravnkel name alive in the family. I like that. Now, see, so you're just saying that because Freysgothi is one of your thingmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but young Hravnkel, like his great-grandfather, has something of an independent streak. And he wants to take up the chieftaincy for Wouldn't it be himself. cool if I chose Hrofenkel Gothi to be a thingman to follow his grandfather's footsteps? <laughs> I could have two. That'd be great. No, I was talking about Hrofenkel Gothi, not Hrofenkel Phrase Gothi. Anyway. That's right. Use exactly that voice, too. <laughs> They'll respect me more if I sound like Lorne Michaels. Right. Wingardium Leviosa. <laughs> Now, it's not clear what his grounds are for claiming Helgi A's half of the Godorth, but he seems pretty determined about getting it. Yeah, he is. And so Hravenkel reaches out to his brother-in-law, Holmstein Bersesen, for support against his uncle. But Holmstein's got a problem. Yeah, he's got a complicated problem. Uh-huh. Holmstein's married to Auslog, Hravenkel's sister. But Holmstein's sister was Droplog daughter, the wife of Helgi Esbjarnarsson. Got it, everyone? Right. <laughs> now, this puts Holmstein in a delicate position. He's torn between two brothers-in-law, and he has to decide. Is his duty to his wife's brother greater or lesser than his duty to his sister's husband? Ah, now, this is good stuff. This right? is the kind of stuff ways that, to get to a brother-in-law. Yeah. This is what makes the saga so cool to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't fall back on claiming he owes greater loyalty to his chieftain here, because Hrofenkel and Helgi own the chieftaincy jointly, so that's not a good out. Right. That's going to create some real confusion in the district, by the way, especially if those two go to court against each other. Right. No matter what you do, you're betraying someone. Well, you'd hope they don't go to court against each other. But uh, all of this is covered nicely in uh, William E. Miller's Blood Taking and Peacemaking, a book we reference quite frequently. Mm -hmm. The problem is that 
a sister's husband is, legally speaking, a close relation. In fact, mm-hmm. there are laws prohibiting a sister's husband from sitting in judgment because of that close connection. Mm-hmm. But those restrictions don't apply to a wife's brother. They can act freely. Right. Think back to Gisli's saga and those relationships, right, and how mm-hmm. those played out. It had a lot to do with wife's brother versus husband's versus uh, uh, sister's husband. Yes. Uh, this is a tangled mess legally. So let's try to work it out. Let's say for argument's sake that Andy married my sister. Oh, God help us. My wife would actually, be upset. Yeah, I don't actually have a sister. So I feel like this is a pretty safe hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, since Andy is my sister's husband, I would be legally exempt from any action against him couldn't serve on juries in cases he's involved in, and so on. Ah, that sounds like something we could really take advantage of. Uh-huh. But here's the kicker. From my perspective, you're just my wife's brother. Right. And I am not constrained or obligated by that relationship to the same degree that you are. More or less. Right. And mm. that's where Holmstein and Hrovnikel find themselves. From Holmstein's position, Helgi as Bjarnason is off-limits legally because of Helgi's marriage to Holmstein's sister. Hrovnikel who's his sister's husband, doesn't have that same status. But from Ravenkel's perspective, Holmstein mm-hmm. has a favorite status as his wife's brother. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's following this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mess, but it's a fascinating one. And it really does work out. Uh, this is why once you start deep diving into the legal minutiae of the sagas, it can become addictive. Or maddening, depending. Sure, or that, yes. Yeah. So Holmstein won't uh, act directly against Helgi Esbjarnason, but he does offer some useful advice, at least. He sends Hrofenkel to Helgi Droplogerson, mm. knowing that there's no one more eager to take up a case against Esbjarnason. Mm. This suggests that, uh, I think, Holmstein wouldn't mind if Hrofenkel got the gold or to himself, so he is willing to act against his sister's husband indirectly. Sure. And this turns out to be good advice. Dreplagerson right? and Hrovengill concoct a scheme in which they go to vain fool named Am the Juggler into offering a gift to Helgi Esbjarnason in, in exchange for being put on the jury for a high-profile case at the next assembly. It's a gift, you think? Yeah, seven horses. Hmm. That's a lot of horses. Yeah. I think it's more of a bribe, really. No, 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 no. It's a gift. You heard me say gift. Yeah, but it's also a bribe. Kind of clearly okay okay if you're going to be technical about it <laughs> and helgi as takes the bribe or the bait or the gift and the horses and names on to a jury mm-hmm. uh, helgi d then exposes on and the bribe in dramatic fashion in front of everyone yeah things go pretty well up to that point but this mm-hmm. is where helgi d is playing with fire he's chosen helgi a's own assembly for this little farce and a lot of men there are furious over the trick. Mm-hmm. In fact, at this point, both sides rush to grab their weapons, and a battle nearly erupts at the thing. Right, now fortunately, Helgi D's got that covered too. He guilted Holmstein over refusing to, to assist Robinkill, and so now Holmstein calls for calm and offers to mediate a settlement, right, on that basis of being attached to both men through these marriages. Mm-hmm. Right, as brother-in-law to both Robinkill and Helgi A, he's an acknowledged neutral party. But the solution he comes up with heavily favors Hrovenkel, who's given full control of the chieftaincy for a period of several years, after which the two men will share it between them once more. Now, that's a heck of a blow to Helgi Esbjarnason. Mm-hmm. Score one point for Helgi D. Yeah, and those types of little victories just keep coming. Right? There's another episode during which Helgi Droplagerson takes up a case for the theft of some ewes milk against Thord of Gerolseri, who's a wow. foster father to one of Helgi A's kids. 
Oh, right. Uh, this is during a famine. Yeah, this can be a short one. Uh, Thord's neighbor Thorgair buys 50 ewes from him, but the mm-hmm. ewes keep making their way back to Thord's sheep pens, and then his servants just uh, kind of keep milking the ewes. <laughs> so are these trained sheep, or are they just naturally finding their way back to their first home? I think they're just making their way back. I mean, there's no suggestion that Thorgair is a sheep whisperer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's a good scam, actually, as long as the ewes do keep returning. Mm-hmm. You get the money for the sheep that are sold, plus the milk and cheese they keep producing, and you don't even have to feed them. Right? There's no downside, really. Yeah, except that sheep aren't all that hard to track, you see. Right, especially <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> right. It's not long before Thorgar figures out why his new ewes aren't giving him much milk. And so Thorgar gets Helgi D to take over the case. And Yeah, there it is again. See, everyone in the district has figured out that Druplaugerson will take up any case they've got against Helgi Asbjarnason. Well, it keeps working. Helgi mm-hmm. Asbjarnason can't get the case dismissed, which isn't surprising since Thord is guilty. Right. <laughs> um, and Helgi Droplogerson manages to win self-judgment and awards himself the value of, get this, 18 cows for the Oof. price of the 18 ewes that were found to have been milked. That is a steep price for some stolen sheep's milk. A ridiculous price. Mm-hmm. And it's a judgment against the foster father of Helgi A's kid. Yeah. This is starting to hit close to home. Right. Uh, now, the third case, uh, Helgi D. takes up a case involving Bjorn of Snotterness, uh, another man fostering a child for Helgi A. Now, Helgi A. is a prolific breeder, it seems. Now, he's a productive fellow in general. Uh, <laughs> now, there's a woman named Thordis, who's one of Helgi Driplagerson's relatives. She's married to an elderly man named Thorstein. And it's not a happy marriage. No. As an old man, he's happy to have a young wife. The young wife, however, isn't so keen on being married to this old man just for his money. Right. I think it was Cato who said that the old man who marries a young woman is a fool. That's right. Uh, now, fortunately, she finds a distraction in Bjorn of Snotterness, who's been visiting Thorstein's farm. And more to the point, visiting Thordis. Ah, strike one. Now, Bjorn, as it happens, is also married. Ooh, strike two. And like we said before, he's a foster father to one of Asbjarnason's children. And strike three. <laughs> so Bjorn is Helgi D's favorite kind of target. Yep. He's cheating on his wife and he's sleeping with the Droplogerson's cousin on the side. Yes to all of those. So that's, I mean, just too tempting a target for Helgi D to pass up. Obviously. What a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. But he's going to try to deal with this quietly at first because his cousin is involved. Well, there's a tension between wanting to keep dunking on Helgi A and <laughs> wanting to protect his own family's honor. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, and in this case, Droplogerson chooses to look out for the family reputation. Right. He waits for Bjorn one night at Thoris's farm, and sure enough, Bjorn shows up, presumably ready to toss pebbles at the window and play a Peter Gabriel song at her. <laughs> very, very current reference, John. Well done. <laughs> hey, some things are timeless. Now, for for a guy who's trying to sneak in, blasting in your eyes by Peter Gabriel outside the window, that's good idea. Real, so you're just real being smart. Silly. No, if he didn't have boom boxes, what could cassettes do? No, uh, he just says, "I prefer Bjorn that you leave off your visits to Thordis. There's no honor for you in provoking an old man. Obey me in this, and I'll do the same for you on another occasion." <laughs> so now he's Rolf the dog. Really, I was I was kind of going more for a slightly more reasonable uh, Yosemite Sam. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I see a Yosemite <laughs> Sam in there. There's there's a fine line between Yosemite Sam and uh, Rolf the dog. 
It's a very broad line. <laughs> So why there's like a DMZ between well, in terms of the, in terms of their actions, but in terms of the way they talk, not uh-huh. so much. Yeah, th- that's surprisingly reasonable, actually. It is, isn't it? Uh, and it seems to be a real offer, but Bjorn ignores it, and shortly after, it becomes public knowledge that uh, Thordis is pregnant. Ooh. Mm-hmm. But uh, even then, Helgi D gives Bjorn a chance to settle things quietly, and he just asks for the compensation due for adultery. But Bjorn refuses to pay him anything and even has the gall to deny responsibility. Yeah, that's a shameless lie, and they both know it. But it's also got a hint of another insult behind it. I think when he denies any responsibility, he's shifting the blame onto Thordis with the implication that she's got multiple lovers. Now, when you put it that way, Helgi's response is entirely understandable. Which is? He kills Bjorn on the spot. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess that's reasonable, according to a very limited definition of the term reasonable. Sure. Uh, but so far, none of this is necessarily calculated to get at Helgi as Bjarnason, right? It's a fa- matter of family honor. Uh, well, what about the way he hides Bjorn's body? Oh. Because the next thing Helgi D does is mm-hmm. collect three of his friends, they row out to an island, and bury Bjorn's body in an unmarked grave on a little island, which has since this event been called Bjarnaskir. Or Bjorn scary. Yeah, now that's not about honor. Uh, it's not clear at first what he is doing, though. Mm-hmm. Well, ordinarily, when we see someone hiding a corpse, our first thought should be that this is going to be set up as a charge of murder. Mm-hmm. Ordinarily, yes. But in this case, Helgi Droplagerson is setting up Helgi as Bjarnason for another round. That's right. The next spring, Helgi as Bjarnason takes the bait. He brings a case against Helgi Droplagerson for dumping the body somewhere, possibly in the ocean. And specifically, he argues that he did not cover him with earth according to legal custom. This allows Helgi Esbjarnason to bring a case for outlawry against Helgi Droplagerson. Right. Now, at the same time, Droplagerson brings a posthumous case against Bjarn for adultery. So the two cases are now in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. This is another of those examples of the law being more about who's cleverer or more popular rather than who's right. Well, maybe sneakier is probably a more accurate uh, way to describe it in this case. <laughs> Helgi right. D. I like saying Helgi D. It, sounds, it reminds me of Heavy D. It's it actually, it's reminding me of a uh, an old Saw Doctor song, Mikey D. Or Michael oh. D. Michael D. Michael D. Up on his Michael D. Michael D. Michael D. Up in the hall. It's very, uh, it's, it keeps running in my head whenever we say Helgi D. Okay. Well, Helgi, <laughs> Helgi D. brings forward his three friends to swear an oath on the altar ring that Bjorn was buried according to legal requirements. An altar ring oath. We haven't seen one of those for a while now. Yes. Yeah. The altar ring was a sacred object, a ring typically worn by a priest or gothi during ceremonies and then left on the altar or near the altar. It's also possible that it was worn until needed, but whatever. Uh, The point is that the altar ring is a symbolic object that connects the human world Mm -hmm. with the divine. Uh, It works in conjunction with the altar and the temple itself, but can be moved to the thing site as it is here. Right, and the portable nature of the ring is important. We should be clear, this is an arm ring, not a finger ring. Right. Uh, But still, right, a portable ring, it carries with it the idea of the temple, right, the idea of the altar and the power of the gods. Yes, and that connection to the divine is what gives it power, allowing it to authenticate any legal, social, or religious oaths sworn on it. Mm -hmm. It's the same idea behind swearing on the Bible or some other holy object. An oath sworn on the altar ring ensures that the swearer speaks the truth, lest divine retribution be invoked on the giver of false testimony. That's heavy stuff. 
It is. And the sanctity of that oath, especially when sworn by several men at once, means they're almost certainly telling the truth. And Helgi Espionerson is caught off guard. Mm -hmm. Uh, His whole case was built on that burial issue, which he was certain he would win. And because of that, he also hasn't really prepared a defense for the Bjorn's infidelity suit. Yes, that's right. So now he's lost the case that he brought, and he's about to lose the one that was brought against him. Right. I feel like we should say again that this is the late Bjorn that we're talking about here. Yeah. The one taking a dirt nap on Bjarnaskare. <laughs> All right. It's, it's understandable that a charge of infidelity against a dead man isn't high on the to-do list for a busy chieftain. No, but uh, but Hel- this is what you meant by setting Helgi S. Bjarnason up. Right. Helgi Droplagerson knew that S. Bjarnason was champing at the bit to win a big case against him, and so he set the bait for a charge of wrongful killing. And when Helgi Esbjarnason takes the bait, he's made to look a fool at the assembly in front of his own thingman. It's clever. It's it a is. truly it's cunning plan. But it it's uh, it's built on a fairly cynical idea of how the law works, I think. Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, this is usually classed as one of the earlier sagas in terms of the time of its writing. Mm-hmm. But it's still got some some of those signs of bitterness about the decline of the legal system of Iceland. Yeah, this is a trick that seems ridiculously unfair. Right. I mean, what was Helgi Esbjarnason supposed to do? How could anyone know what had happened? Right, and for that matter, what does it say about the law that under these circumstances, Helgi Esbjarnason is going to end up having to pay money to a man who killed his friend and hid the body? Well, I mean, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, to avoid having Bjorn uh, retroactively outlawed, which, I mean, he's dead, so who cares? But Helgi well. Esbjarnason offers to pay compensation for Bjorn's affair. And he even allows Helgi Droplagerson to set the price. Right. I think there are very good reasons why you would care. Remember that Bjorn was married, right? He's got a family that he left behind. Mm-hmm. If he's outlawed, all of his property becomes forfeit. Ah, good point. So I think this is about, this is about Helgi Esbjarnason trying to be a good chieftain, and protect this now widowed family. Well said. Uh, but in this case, I mean, Drop Lagerson, right? Well, he's being given the opportunity to set the price for this. And yeah. he happily asks for 100 ounces of silver. Mm-hmm. Yet another win for Team Drop Lagerson. Yeah, this is starting to feel a little one-sided. So the theme here is that Helgi Drop Lagerson is winning case after case against Helgi S. Bjarnason, mm-hmm. the powerful Helgi S. Bjarnason's friends. And even against Helgi himself. And making him look bad every time. It's really right. something. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's it's clear we're heading toward this inevitable direct confrontation between the two Helgis. Yeah. Uh, before we get to that, though, I do have a question. Well, I have an answer. Don't be so sure. You haven't heard it yet. Yeah. In most sagas, despite the subtlety of the narrative, it's fairly clear when we're being led to condemn or celebrate the actions of the major figures. Uh, that's true, but not always, but often. Yeah, I'll agree well, with that. Right. I mean, yeah, often. So here's the question. At this point, who has a claim on our sympathies? Hmm. Does either Helgi really merit our approval or disapproval? Well, I mean, this is one of the things I like about this saga. Uh, mm-hmm. And sagas in general, they tend to be so understated that it's almost like inviting conversation about the actions of the characters and who's right and who's wrong. And mm-hmm. what are the what are the issues that would uh, lead you to believe one way or the other? But in terms of building up cred with the cool kids... I'd say Helgi <laughs> Droplagerson's doing very well. He is. I mean, you tell me, John, what's not to like about him? And, I and understand. Up, up to this point of the saga, who exactly is Helgi S. Bjarnason outside of a powerful man with a lot of kids and family connections? Well, and, you know, I do think that he is, he comes off fairly sympathetically here in being willing to sort of take one on the chin to protect the family of Bjorn from the shame and from the property loss. Sure, of, yeah. 
of uh, his outlawry. Um, but I do think this is meant to be ambiguous. Right? I mean, it, it, something like Nyal Saga or Gizli Saga, right? Where we, we recognize that the major figures aren't really right or wrong. They're just operating from different perspectives and with different priorities. Yes. Where our sympathies lie is based to a large degree on what we already think of as right action under the circumstances. In other words, the saga doesn't dictate a moral position. Mm-hmm. It presents us with two sides of a conflict and allows the reader's disposition to determine which one is the protagonist. Yeah, it's a pretty neat trick if you can pull it off. Yeah. Uh, the first time I read this, I was definitely in the Droplagrison camp. But lately, I've come to at least sympathize with Asbjarnason's difficulties in his position. Yeah. I see his point of view more than I used to. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but we're, we're certainly getting a more even-handed story here. Uh, and that's what what I think is a mark of this saga's quality. Um, mm-hmm. It's a more even-handed story than we saw in uh, Vopnafjord, the saga. Uh, where, oh, definitely. Remember, uh, Brodhelgi's aggression came with some pretty unsavory behavior. Mm-hmm. And his enemy, Geitir, was criticized by his own Thingmen for being slow to do anything to stop Brodhelgi's troublemaking, which is part of why we had trouble yeah. kind of selecting Thingmen in that saga. Right. And throughout this, as Bjarnason manages to keep his cool, yeah. and more importantly, he keeps his status. Mm-hmm. Right. This is an important part of the story. One of this saga's preoccupations is the status of the chieftains, and especially the advantage a Gothi enjoyed against even the most powerful farmer. Helgi Droplagerson wins out against Helgi Asbjarnason frequently, but Asbjarnason's ability to absorb those losses, absorb those body blows without losing his status or his power, is impossible for Droplagerson to match. In other words, Helgi Droplagerson has to keep winning mm-hmm. in order to keep this feud on an even keel. Right. If he slips up, Helgi Esbjarnason's advantage of status might become overwhelming. Exactly. So the question is, how much longer can he keep up this winning streak? Part 5. Irreconcilable Differences Of course, Helgi Drublogerson is also about to commit one of the more despicable acts of the saga. So this was an opportune time for you to jump off the bandwagon, John. Pure coincidence, I assure you. Besides, I didn't say I was jumping off the bandwagon. I think Thorvald Ingildsen, our author, <laughs> if I can just uh, name him one more time, I think he's actually doing a good job of balancing perspectives here. Yeah, as opposed to last time in Vapnafirthing a saga, uh, when the saga writer was pretty clearly writing from the perspective of Gaetir and his son Thorkel. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though he didn't do a great job with Thorkel, he, he was yeah. pretty prejudiced against Brod Helgi. Right. Uh, let's get to that despicable behavior from Drub Lagerson. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years go by after that series of lawsuits between the Helgis, and Drup Lagerson makes a visit to his mother, Droplog. That's a good boy. I mean, you, you don't want to neglect your poor mom. Sure. Uh, now, a couple of weeks after he arrives, witnesses see a small gathering of people in a private conversation at Droplog's farm. It's Helgi, his mother, Droplog, and her servant, Thorgils. No one knows what they're talking about. But the next day, Thorgils asks Droplog's husband, Halstein of Bretal, to check on sheep supplies. Now, once they do that... Sheep supplies? E- what? What supplies do sheep need? I don't know. Hay. <laughs> Maybe some treacle or something. Sheep stuff. Fine. All right. Carry on. Go ahead. Uh, sheep so supplies. Th- Thor- <laughs> so Thorgils takes Halstein out into a field... And then attacks and kills him using an axe which belongs to Helgi Droplagerson. Ooh, that was sudden. And very unfortunate. Yeah, I I mean, it is sudden. But there have been a couple of hints that this might have been coming, right? We'll get to that. Uh, The immediate issue is that this is a fairly surprising method for killing. 
We've seen servants used for assassinations before, but this is Halstein's own servant. Ah, now normally this would be a problem. Servants aren't known for keeping their mouths shut. If this mm-hmm. is a conspiracy, which it sure looks like it is, what's yeah. stopping Thorgils from singing like a bearded canary? <laughs> the bearded, the rare Icelandic bearded canary. <laughs> right. uh, now, there is one thing that'll shut him up. Uh, Droplagerson meets Thorgils on his way back to the farm. And once he learns that Halstein has died, he kills Thorgils and uh-huh. then goes home to announce both killings. He kills him. Yeah, he kills him. Uh, this is obviously according to some plan, but uh, it's also really cold-hearted, and it complicates my well, feelings towards Helgi. Yeah, it does take care of the loose end, though. It, well, not really, because the rumor mill gets hold of the fact that Thorgils was meeting with Droplog and Helgi the day mm. before the killings. So people noticed them. Right. And once those whispers get started, Droplog and Helgi both become very unpopular. Well, and understandably so. Yeah. Uh, Helgi is summoned by Helgi Asbjarnason over the killing. And when he tries to build up his support for the case, he realizes that he's actually got very little support this time. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people want to support a man in the killing of his own stepfather for no reason. Well, we assume no reason. Well, and Droplog seeks to avoid the entire thing by taking all her belongings and her three-year-old son off to the Faroe Islands, <laughs> where she buys land and lives for the rest of her life. And she's now out of the saga. But right. <laughs> she leaves behind her son Helgi facing a pretty incriminating case for conspiring to kill. Yeah. A case which uh, wouldn't happen if it wasn't for her, I well, think. Well, thanks for killing my husband, son. Good luck with the trial. I'm out of here. 23 skidoo. <laughs> Why am I not surprised that you'd come up with a 23 skidoo? <laughs> because I'm actually 110 years old. <laughs> right. Now that brings us back to something uh, kind of important we skipped over. Mm. Which well, is? Why they did it. Why did they kill Halstein? Well, we didn't skip it. The The saga never offers an explanation. All we know is that back when Droplog married Halstein, Helgi was against the marriage. Yes. And it was only Helgi who objected. As far as we know, his brother Grimm was fine with it, or at least kept his mouth shut. Grimm's been very quiet so far. <laughs> he has. And, and Grimm's not involved in this killing. Mm-hmm. But any personal or even Oedipal reasons we might try to ascribe for Helgi wanting to kill his stepfather wouldn't explain while Droplog is apparently in on the conspiracy. Yeah, it's unsatisfying. Uh, there's definitely a story there, right? especially because this killing is a big deal. I mean, Helgi yeah. Droplogerson is really exposed. And Asbjarnason is going to take full advantage. And Helgi Asbjarnason is involved. Why? I mean, Holstein isn't one of his friends, is he? What's he doing? Well, ostensibly, he's taking on the case because Holstein's sons are away from Iceland at the time. Uh, but obviously, he's also eager to take up a case against Droplagerson when the odds are in his favor. Of course, this is his opportunity. Uh, killing this unpopular means that Droplagerson can't really fight back effectively. Mm-hmm. As we were saying before, he needed to keep up his winning streak in order to keep punching up at Espionerson. He, instead, he essentially scored an own goal. That's something of a mixed metaphor. Eh, you'll forgive me for it. <laughs> uh, so what you're saying is that once Espionerson hits a touchdown by holding serve. Uh-huh, and, yeah, yeah. And Droplagerson is putting from the rough into a sticky wicket. Uh-huh. I'm not saying any of that, and you can stuff it, but uh, <laughs> Bloggerson is in deep trouble. Yeah, he is, yeah. Uh, he's finally made a mistake, and as Bjarnason can seek some revenge for all those losses he's suffered over the past years. And for once, as Bjarnason has his way in court. 
Uh, Helgi Droplogerson loses the case, has to pay 60 cows to Asbjarnason in compensation, and is sentenced to minor outlawry, which is three years exile. Wait, now those 60 cows are also calculated as 1,200 L's of homespun cloth. Now, according to Edward Stringham's calculations in Anarchy in the Law, six L's of cloth is equivalent to a standard ounce of silver. So the calculation here is... Andy? I was told there would be no math. Oh, come on. Uh, okay. I don't know why you would do this to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> How else are you going to learn? <laughs> 60 cows. Um, that equals 1,200 of homespun. So right. 100 L's of cloth is worth five cows. Uh-huh. I think you're making this harder than it has to be, but yes. One cow is worth 20 L's, which is three and a third ounces of silver. Yeah. So, okay. Wait a second. An ounce is six L's, so two ounces is 12 L's, so 1,200, 1200 L's is 200 ounces of silver. There you go. Yeah, long way around. Yeah. So the cows are irrelevant. Yeah, a mere red herring, or whatever <laughs> the bovine equivalent of a red herring is. A red whole steam, I think. Ah, uh, very nice. <laughs> uh, the point is that this is 200 ounces of silver, which is a standard price for a killing. It's a, it's a weird way of phrasing it, but it's a standard price, mm-hmm. which means Drop Laugerson is being held just as responsible as if he'd wielded the axe himself. Now, the tricky part of any settlement like this is, of course, enforcement. Mm-hmm. We're never told whether the fine is actually paid, although I, I assume that it's usually paid. But oh. we are told that Helge Drop Laugerson makes no effort whatsoever to leave Iceland. He and Grimm continue to attend assemblies and otherwise act as though no outlawry has been leveled against him. Right. Now, while Grimm is always careful not to leave Helgi alone or unprotected, Helgi himself acts completely unconcerned. The brothers spend their summers at their own farm and winters with their cousin, Thorkel Gatesson, in Crossland. Right. This is the Thorkel from the Volpnafjord saga again. Yep. And uh, one winter, while the brothers are with Thorkel, word comes that Flossi of Svinefell, another man we've met before, by the way, uh, is bringing men together as support in an outlawry case. That's Flossi Thordeson. As in the, the leader of the Burners of Njol? Yeah, the same, although I suspect he'd rather not be known as the Burner. Well, yeah, then Flosi shouldn't burn people in their farms. <laughs> in his defense, that hasn't happened yet. Well, it's uh, about to. This, this saga is taking place around the year 1000. So at this point, Flosi is just another well-connected chieftain. Mm. And when he calls, Thorkel and a bunch of other supporters head off to offer their support. But not the Droploggersons. No. Helgi claims illness, so the two of them stay behind. Oh, maybe that's what Thorkel was doing in Bob uh, the Saga. Uh, but, but actually, Helgi wants to help their cousin, Ronveig Bresting, to effect a divorce against her husband, Thorgrim Skincap. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a digression, isn't it? The brief version is that uh, Ronveig has been planning to divorce her husband for a while. We mm-hmm. don't know exactly why she wants a divorce, although, as we're going to learn, Thorgrim, he's not a very impressive man. He's not. He's a, he's more the sort to hide when something goes wrong rather than stand up for himself. Yes, but he's resisting the divorce, apparently mm-hmm. by quibbling over the appropriate division of their belongings and stuff like that. Yeah, it's not that all that unusual. Uh, remember, we saw something similar when Hala left Broadhelgi in Vopnifird's side. Mm-hmm. Right? Households were often dependent on that merging of both adults' holdings. The danger of a sudden loss of half the assets of the home was potentially catastrophic. 
Yeah, and and just to be clear, a divorce in in medieval Iceland or in Viking culture, if we can be kind of more general, wasn't mm-hmm. as simple as a woman just saying I want to be divorced or a man saying he wants to be divorced. There's a it's a mutual agreement kind of thing. Or right. the woman has to find fault, or the man has to find fault with the other one. Right. Um, or have enough. Can, or have enough. You know, cover in the form of. Uh, men in her family willing to protect her to be able to just walk away from the marriage. Exactly, which is what we're trying to accomplish here. Right. Um, In other words, this isn't just about being greedy or spiteful. The resistance to returning a dowry after a divorce might reflect a fear of economic collapse of the household without the wife's contribution. So he he wants to be married to her. Right. In some ways, the short-term prospects of the wife were somewhat better since she was likely to be moving back in with a member of her birth family. Mm-hmm. In other words, she's adding value to a household when she leaves her husband. The husband, on the other hand, is left with a poorer farm and possibly a dangerous economic position. Yeah. There's interesting discussions about the economics of divorce and blood taking and peacemaking. Um, so you can look that up if you're interested. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ronveig isn't terribly concerned about her husband's situation. In fact, she rubs a little salt in the wound. Yeah. When her cousins show up to kind of force the issue... And they have a handful of supporters with them to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's ready to go. She doesn't even bother to pack. And this is the cool part. She throws her husband's clothes into a cesspit on her way out. And then she and her cousins just go to a nearby farm to have breakfast. Right. Um, yeah. Some, so uh, my favorite part of this is that her husband is actually at home and in bed when all this is happening. And apparently sleeping pre- uh, in, you know, yeah. a compromised position. Yeah, I don't think he's sleeping. I think he can presumably hear his wife loudly divorcing him, but he waits till everyone's gone before he comes out of the house. Well, as we said, uh, personal <laughs> bravery is not really Thorgrim skin cap's strong suit. True, but the, the sagas don't usually go to this extent to showcase the embarrassment a man suffers uh, when he's disinclined to confront his foes, to put yeah. it kindly, uh, or for that matter, disinclined to confront his wife. Uh, when Skincap finally skulks out of his home, <laughs> he's uh, he he's wrapped in a sheet. Yeah, wrapped in a sheet because all his clothes are in the cesspit. <laughs> That's right, and he has to run on foot to the farm of his neighbor Thorarin Moldgrub, which is a great nickname too. <laughs> uh, and Thorarin Moldgrub opens the door to find Thorgrim in his bare feet and a woolly sheet on his doorstep. Huh? Well, why do you come here so early, Thorgrim, and rather thinly dressed? My wife has been taken away, and I, I now want to ask you for help in this matter. I want to give you some clothes first, <laughs> because that's what you're most in need of at the moment. It's such a funny little scene. I mean, Thorgrim's a clown, but it, it's hard not to feel a little sorry for him until you, you think of him standing there in just a sheet. You know, actually, my favorite details, the next line of the saga is, Then Thorgrim ate breakfast there. <laughs> There's a lot of that kind of slightly absurd detail in this saga, yeah. and I appreciate it. But uh, this is more than just a casual stack of flapjacks with your neighbor who showed up in his underwear. <laughs> right, it is. <laughs> and, and you're right that this is actually relevant, because Thorarin, over the flapjacks, advises Thorgrim's skin cap to go and tell Helgi as Bjarnason mm. that the, the Droplagersons are going to be traveling home with only a few supporters in three days' time. Which means that Helgi Esbjarnason has a chance to make good on his legal right to attack Helgi Droplagerson for violating his sentence of outlawry. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No, uh, the Droplagersons are going to have a rough trip home. Right. And we are going to leave them here, Mm. heading off on their perilous journey home. Will Helgi and Grimm make it back to the safety of their own farm? 
Can Helgi Esbjarnason build enough support quickly enough to strike against the Drep Lagersons while they're vulnerable? Ooh. And will Thordrim Skincap be able to recover his soiled clothes from the cesspit? These questions and others will be answered in the second part of Drop Lagersona Saga. Is that there a cliffhanger? Are we doing a cliffhanger, John? Well, it's cliffhanger adjacent, at least. <laughs> okay. Well, we will be back soon with the rest of this story. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us to let us know what you thought of the first part of this saga, whether you're on Team Asbjarnason or Team Drop Lagersson. What you think we got right, what you think we got wrong, or whatever else is on your mind. Wrong. You can reach out to us on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter, where we are at Saga Thing Pod, or through email at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can write us a letter on toilet paper, name witnesses, and drop it in your local cesspit. We'll get it. I'd rather not explain how, but we'll get it. Oh, my poor son. So gross. <laughs> All right, that's it for us. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye for now. I had a whole thing when I was a teenager about, um, like, basically training myself to be a clown. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I taught myself to juggle. I taught myself to make balloon animals. Uh, and I started taking, I started, like, doing ventriloquism lessons. Uh, Were you getting ready to have your own little magic show? Well, no, I, I was crap at magic, so I don't have the, like, the manual dexterity. Like, my hand-eye coordination yeah. is crap. How's your, uh, how's your uh, pratfalls? Um, my pratfalls are not good, but I can actually fall over really convincingly. <laughs> <laughs> That's just called falling over. Well, yes, but it's very convincing. <laughs>